Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Joe Biden asks Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September. He has formally asked for $33 billion to fund both humanitarian and military aid to Ukraine. What does this tell us about the priorities of the Democrats that are in control of this government? For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He currently holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Dr. Horn, I believe and say all the time that uh, budgets and funding requests are numeric representations of priorities. Biden has asked Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September. $8.5 billion of this is to help support the Ukrainian economy while the United States economy is struggling. That total will help fund Ukrainian government, support food while people in this country are starving, energy while people in this country can't afford to buy gas, and health care services while people in this country are in dire need of health care. But this is all for the Ukrainian people. The Democrats in the House and Senate can't pass legislation to provide a living wage, child care, or eliminate student debt in the U.S., but they can find funds to help Ukrainians. Can you please explain this to me and to us, Dr. Gerhorn? Well, I think it raises a phrase that I hadn't heard for a while. That is to say, can the United States afford guns and butter? That phrase emerged, as you recall, during the genocidal war in Vietnam with regard to the priorities of then-U.S. President uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. turned out that the United States could not afford guns and butter. Uh, The guns did not prevent a defeat ignominiously in Indochina. And the lack of spending on social and political priorities, of course, led to many uh, U.S. cities going up in flames, uh, not unlike uh, what befell Los Angeles about 30 years ago uh, with the acquittal of the officers who were caught on tape beating uh, black motorist Rodney King. But actually, it's even deeper than that. What I mean is, that call that when Moscow suggested that its natural gas and other exports should be paid for in rubles, we interpreted that, at least I interpreted that, as a kind of judo maneuver on the part of President Putin, who, as you know, is a judo specialist, a black belt. In other words, he was saying that Poland... Bulgaria, uh, to speak of the latest who have been accused of being subject to Moscow, quote, blackmail, unquote. If you want natural gas, bring your and euros to Moscow and set up an account 
in Moscow's third largest bank, the Gazprom Bank, which, by the way, is not under sanctions, and then they'll be administratively converted into rubles, which uh, you can see uh, could stand to benefit the Russians. But what's happening now with regard to this $33 billion request and the companion statement by Pentagon chief Lloyd Austin, where he let the cat out of the bag and suggested that the purpose of this conflict to, quote, weaken, unquote, Russia, I think another judo maneuver is in motion. What I mean is, if you look at the Asia Times this morning, there's a remarkable piece by a writer who talks about what some of us already knew, which is that the United States has become heavily dependent upon exports from China. And the writer says that this is remarkable, how the number one country in the United States is so dependent upon the number two country. The judo maneuver, quite frankly, is this, that to the extent that the United States thinks it's pulling a fast one by creating an Afghanistan in the heart of Central and Eastern Europe to drag down Russia, to that extent, the United States cannot effectuate its heralded pivot towards Asia and confront China. And so, actually, the United States may think it's weakening Russia, but it's actually weakening China, which we have been told for in recent years was the ball game. Now, this is something that apparently has not occurred to all the geniuses in Washington, D.C., but it seems to me painfully uh, obvious that the United States is in a kind of quagmire of its own creation in Central and Eastern Europe. Not only that, but it gives China an incentive to help to keep Russia afloat, since China recognizes that to a certain extent Russia is a firewall, and that to the extent that its firewall is damaged, China will be damaged. And then there's the other point, which those who have not kept up with the literature on capitalism, which I would say is the intelligentsia and hotheads in Washington, may not be familiar with, which is that sanctions has an unavoidable companion, which is sanctions busting. In this morning's Wall Street Journal, uh, there is an article about Italian firms that are engaged in sanctions busting by setting up dummy corporations in Kazakhstan on the Russian border and then dealing directly with Moscow. Uh, I dare say that other capitalists throughout the North Atlantic bloc and certainly in Japan and South Korea are probably contemplating the thing, not to mention the most piratical capitalists of all, speaking of those in the United States of America. And then there's the other a complementary aspect of capitalism, which is corruption. We're quite familiar with corruption in Ukraine. In some ways, they charted a new and novel course in that field. But with all of these weapons pouring into Ukraine, it would not surprise me at all if some wise guys in Ukraine are either A, peddling those weapons to the Russian military, or B, uh, acting as a kind of lookout 
for Russia so that Russia can destroy those weapons on the ground. Uh, these are the contradictions of trying to wage a war uh, in the capitalist society, in the capitalist country, with capitalism under severe challenge. And I think this also bespeaks another point, which I think I've mentioned on this program, certainly I've mentioned it elsewhere, which is that many of our friends on the left have a kind of tunnel vision when it comes to analyzing this conflict. The tunnel goes from Washington to Moscow. Whereas in order to take the full measure of this war in terms of its import and impact, you have to, of course, look at China. You have to look at the global south. You have to look at India, which we've talked about on this program and its refusal to break ranks with Russia. Ditto for Vietnam, which the United States thought it was lining up as a, a kind of ally. And then there are the other contradictions of this conflict, which I know we've talked about. For example, the United States attempt to use the International Criminal Court to go after Russian leaders. Does that open the door to National Court being wielded against the United States and Israel? Of course, we know about the Hague Invasion Act, how the United States has tried to sanction ICC prosecutors. But once you open a Pandora's box, who knows what will emerge? And likewise, with regard to the United States' attack on the Security Council, where Russia and China wield the veto, there have been rumblings and grumblings from Washington that they'd like to see that change. You recall that just today we've heard all of these stories about how the Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Guterres, was supposedly under attack by Russian missiles when he was visiting Ukraine. Well, if you're going to up our United Nations Security Council and try to remove the Russian and Chinese vetoes, does that open the door for entry into the Security Council? by Brazil, South Africa, India, that is to say uh, other uh, nations who have been reluctant to sign on to sanctions. And so once again, my wider point is that Washington uh, may have accidentally or perhaps structurally given their backing for NATO, which is the causes belli with regard to this entire conflict, they may have created some sort of contradiction, a quagmire for themselves, that could portend a tectonic shift in the global correlation of forces, eroding the impact of the centuries-long North Atlantic-dominated order, leading inexorably, perhaps, ineluctably, perhaps, to a new order uh, dominated by what is called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, led by China and Russia. Dr. Horn, domestically, um, the $33 billion request for money, we know that um, uh, about a week or so ago, uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, um, it was in the New York Times that he was asking for $7 billion a month. So now, a week later, Joe Biden says they want to give him $33 billion, which is around $8 billion a month starting, say, May, June, July, and August to go till September. And when we look, it says that money will support food, energy, health care services, um, pocket money, pensions. So it's basically build back better for Ukrainians. How do you and, and I'm seeing online a lot of pushback and, the you know, obviously what people are going to say. 
Americans are saying, wait a minute, that's that evil socialism that you told us that we couldn't have here. How do you think that affects the already dwindling legitimacy of the Biden administration and the ruling elite class in, in, in general in America? Well, certainly with regard to Mr. Biden and the Democrats, uh, I'm here to bring you a first-hand primary information based upon my frequent appearances on black radio, wherein whenever the subject of Ukraine raises its ugly head, most of the listeners want to talk about the point that Mr. Biden, as he announced yesterday, wants to leapfrog the line in terms of 100,000 Ukrainians uh, jumping to the front of the line in terms of immigration, whereas uh, Haitians are roughhoused and manhandled on the Texas-Mexico border. Uh, they want to talk about the maltreatment and mistreatment of African students still to this very moment uh, in the close U.S. ally known as Poland as they seek to escape uh, Ukraine. And it's leading to quite a bit of consternation. I think that there is a bit of upset, to put it mildly, about the fact that a lot of the black organizations, the leadership, uh, such as the Congressional Black Caucus, are not necessarily speaking effectively to these questions. Instead, they're going for the okey-doke. Uh, they're signing off blindly with regard to sending billions to, to the Ukraine. At the same time, as I know I've mentioned on this program, uh, there was a startling piece that I can't get over in the New York Times a few days ago about a pandemic of black, homeless, unsheltered, unhoused men dying like flies on the streets of Los Angeles. And so you have to ask yourself, why are billions of taxpayers' dollars headed across the Atlantic, where inevitably it'll be skimmed by these chefs and chiefs of corruption in Ukraine or past masters in the dark arts of skimming and corruption? Why is that happening? when you have uh, black men dying like flies in the streets of Los Angeles and perhaps other cities across the United States of America. Obviously, this makes no sense. Uh, obviously, it's not a good look as we steer the ship of state towards the midterm elections in November, and it bespeaks the snarling contradictions in which the ruling elite now finds it. The U.S. unveils a plan to ramp up censorship, uh, the move comes right after Musk, Elon Musk, uh, struck a deal to buy Twitter and pledged to restore freedom of speech. Joe Biden is expanding the Department of Homeland Security's purview to include fighting speech that the government deems to be disinformation. The new body will be headed by Nina Jankowicz, whose resume includes advising the Ukrainian foreign ministry and overseeing the Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute Lobby Group. So in order to fight disinformation, Biden has brought on board someone whose job it is to spread and disseminate disinformation. For you as an attorney, someone who took constitutional law in law school, what does this say to you about the, the, the disregard for the First Amendment? And, uh, and censorship. Well, the First Amendment is clearly relevant since we're talking about a state actor, clearly, the United States of America. Uh, that is to say, it's certainly uh, in the business of abridging a freedom of speech. 
even if you cross the street and look at the private sector, uh, passing under the radar, uh, I'm afraid to say, this week, was the fact that the person who could easily uh, pass for the Minister of Information de facto in the United States of America, speaking of the executive editor of the New York Times, uh, you have a new one just appointed, Joseph Kahn. Why is that important? Not only because the New York Times helps to set the agenda for news generally, but Joseph Kahn's track record was as a China hawk. He speaks uh, Putumgua, the primary language in China. Uh, this is a signal for high conflict uh, with the People's Republic of China, I'm afraid to say, and that does not necessarily augur well for international peace and security. In, in looking at this, you know, my immediate response, my immediate thought on this is this is the opposite. It's a Trojan horse. It's the opposite of what they're saying it is. It really is because the narrative around Ukraine and other things are starting to fall apart. They're do, they, they, they have to control the disinformation that they're putting out, and they have to protect it from actual information that this is kind of Orwellian doublespeak. Your thoughts? Well, clearly uh, that's the case. And uh, I'm afraid to say that uh, I have been a victim of what we're discussing because many of the broadcasts on uh, RT that I appeared on over the years, uh, somehow they have disappeared from YouTube. Now, uh, I'm not sure if that's uh, a positive development, uh, certainly uh, for YouTube, but in any case, that is what has happened. And so it bespeaks, I'm afraid to say, a certain kind of panic uh, in the uh, ruling circles. But uh, once again, uh, we would be remiss if we just focused on the ruling elite of the United States of America and did not look at some of their comrades and companions and what Glenn Ford, the late journalist, used to call the black misleadership class. Because one of the key lessons of U.S. history that myself and others have been promulgating in recent years is that if you're really concerned about the deteriorating of black condition, you have to focus on the international arena. You have to recruit allies abroad. And that's precisely what the misleadership class is not doing as some of them sign off on this latest misadventure, maladventure, uh, speaking of pouring billions of dollars down a rat hole in Kiev, Ukraine. How does this, uh, what does this say to you about the fascist leanings of the United States government? Well, I'm glad you raised that question. I have a book coming out in a few weeks on the roots of U.S. fascism, looking at that subject through, A, the lens of Texas, the right-wing anchor of this country, and B, through the lens of slavery and, and genocide against Native Americans, it's called the Counter-Revolution of 1836, when Texas seceded from Mexico on the basis of Mexican abolition. Check it out. Dr. Joe Horn, as always, will do. Look forward to having you back. Enjoy your weekend. You too. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Moderna seeks authorization of coronavirus vaccine for youngest children. Vaccine maker Moderna has requested emergency use authorization uh, yesterday of its coronavirus vaccine for babies, toddlers, and young children, a highly anticipated step toward making shots available to the last group in the U.S. lacking access. How significant is this in terms of where we are now in the COVID-19 process since uh, Dr. Fauci told us uh, earlier in the week that we're making great progress. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a board-certified pediatrician, obesity medicine specialist, and public health expert, Dr. Yolandra Hancock. As always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So Moderna's announcement will intensify pressure on the FDA to move quickly. The path to a vaccine for the youngest children has been torturous, marked by disappointing results, delays, and confusing communication. And in the meantime, as many as 75% of children have been infected with the virus since the dawn of the pandemic, according to a new study. I find that 75% number to be incredibly disturbing. Uh, Can you speak to your trust in that study? And then what does all of this say to you? You know, I certainly expected a number similar to that, especially with how long it has taken for us to be able to have vaccines to cover our children across the age spectrum. For the five to 11 year olds, we didn't have a vaccine available until November of 2021. Meanwhile, our little ones were back in elementary, middle and high school. When you add in with that a more infectious subvariant, such as was Omicron 1.0, with a predisposition for children to have more significant infections, given the area of the body in which it infects in the upper airway, I'm not surprised. You know, certainly when I hear people say, well, this is going to put pressure on the FDA. Well, the FDA should have felt that pressure back last year. Moderna submitted paperwork for emergency use authorization for their 12 to 17-year-old vaccine. They submitted paperwork for their 5 to 11-year-old vaccine, and they have now submitted their paperwork for the 6-month to 4-year-old vaccine. I'm trying to still figure out what happened to the emergency use authorization back in 2021. Like where, where, where is the delay? It has been poorly communicated by the FDA as to why specifically with the Moderna vaccine, why we have seen such a slow move in terms of their approval. Right now, the only pediatric vaccine that's available for COVID is the Pfizer vaccine, and that's for 5 to 17. The other part of the concern is the challenge in moving the numbers up right now in terms of children getting vaccinated and whether or not parents are even going to get their six-month to four-year-olds vaccinated, especially given all the misinformation and miscommunication about how this is going to play out. Right now, only 28% of five to 11-year-olds are fully vaccinated, which is why that 75% was not surprising. And only um, 58% of 12 to 17-year-olds are fully vaccinated. And, And they can actually get a booster at this point and very few of those children in that age group have. Dr. Hancock, I will, you know, to be quite frank, I have great, personally have great pause about that because of the percentages of, um, you know, when you look at uh, the young people and the percentages of deaths and hospitalizations and the number being so astronomically low 
to me, when I think about the vaccine, when I think about the reality that there are documented um, occurrences of uh, reactions and different various negative things happening with the vaccine, I think it is a legitimate question as to whether it is in the best interest to vaccinate a child who the odds of them dying or getting hospitalized are so low. I think that's a valid a valid question. What are your thoughts? Well, I think you have to be careful in how you define astronomically low. It isn't the case. It isn't that comparatively speaking to adults, but you need to compare children to children. In the 12 months of a flu season, the highest number of children that we have lost has been around 180. In the first 12 months of the COVID-19 pandemic, we not lost nearly 300 children. There have been more children hospitalized due to COVID-19 in comparison to influenza. We have also seen more complications. There is no long flu. After a child gets a flu or a cold, they don't have symptoms four months, 12 months later. That is going to cause them brain fog, chronic fatigue, and some of the mental health issues that we have seen. You also have to pay close attention to how these various variants differentially impact children. There were record-breaking numbers of children who were hospitalized simply due to the Omicron variant. Um, even now, we're continuing to see an increase in the number of COVID-19 cases among children with Omicron 2.0. Over 11,000 children were hospitalized just between December and February due to the Omicron variant. And it's only this likely an undercount because only 25 states report out age demographic data in terms of pediatric populations. So we have to pay attention to the fact that with this particular variant, with Omicron 1.0, five times as many children between four and under were hospitalized compared to previous waves. And of those children who were hospitalized, 90% of them were unvaccinated. And of the children who were hospitalized, 30% of them did not have an underlying condition because that's the other argument. Well, children who get sick because of COVID, it's because they have other health issues. Well, guess what? 30% of the children who were hospitalized did not have any underlying conditions. And 20% of those 11,000 children between that time period were in the ICU. So adults have to be very, very careful when they start talking about COVID not really impacting children. It's a lie. Because when you compare children to children, COVID does disproportionately impact little ones compared to influenza, RSV, strep throat, all the other infections that children deal with around this, this time period. And I think it's because not enough information has been shared about the experience of children with COVID that grownups have that perception, not to mention the fact that when you look at black and brown children, even more so, this information is important. Over 60% of the thousand plus children who have died from COVID, they have been Latinx, Native American, and Black. 75% of the children who have been hospitalized due to COVID have been children of color, and over 75% of the children who have dealt with multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is the direct complication, not even inclusive of what long COVID is. We don't know the number of Black and Brown children who are dealing with long COVID. 75% of them have developed multi-system inflammatory syndrome. These are symptoms, these are issues that potentially could last these children their lifetime. And so you have to be very, very careful when we belittle the impact that COVID has and the protection that vaccinations can provide. We know now that spring has sprung, and I know that every morning when I go out to get in my car and it's covered in pollen. It's the car, the blue car is green. Um, and and also I can tell with the scratchiness in my throat and all the all the other uh, pollen related 
uh, uh, challenges that so many face. How? What do you say to folks who are trying to determine whether or not that scratchy throat, that runny nose, and and the drainage and all that other stuff that goes with excessive pollen, whether or not they need to be concerned about COVID? It's an excellent question, especially at this time of the year. My recommendation is always to test to know what your status is to make sure that what you think are allergies are exactly allergies. We'll either do a test in the health center or because home-based tests are so readily available now, I have my, I still have my little stockpile of Biden tests just in case. I have seasonal allergies. My daughter has seasonal allergies. And when we have been initially symptomatic, we, we get a nose swap to make sure that this isn't some mild case of Omicron 2.0 or whatever sub-sub-variant we're now dealing with. And that's really where we have to operate, especially now as we're riding out this last section of this current wave, because the Omicron 2.0 variant is 12 times more infectious than OG COVID, four times more infectious than even Omicron 1.0, we still have to be careful. There are seniors that we could put at risk. There are immunocompromised individuals that we could be putting at risk. And there are people with chronic diseases where it may be a mild case for me, but you having diabetes, high blood pressure, or whatever your health conditions may be, it could facilitate you being hospitalized or, God forbid, dying. And so that's where we still have to operate. We can't remove ourselves from these public health measures for us to know what our status is. And even in the face of knowing that you have a history of allergies, go on and swab your nose know what your status is. About a month or so ago, we talked to you about a um, a program in which if someone tested positive, they could immediately get the anti-COVID drugs and they didn't have to get a prescription or anything. Um, and what's the update? Is that still going on? And what do we know about those uh, the drugs, the efficacy of them, et cetera? Do you have any info on that? Sure. Now, the challenge with that program that Biden initially announced was the following week, Health and Human Services announced that they didn't have any more money. And so in order for you to get a treatment, you have to get a test. If the government is no longer paying for COVID-19 testing, then it takes that program out of commission. So that's the challenge is that for individuals who are not paying out of pocket to get tested, then cannot go on to get treatment. And some pharmacies are still offering COVID-19 testing, but they're not obligated. They can actually opt out of their government contract such that they no longer are required to provide free COVID-19 testing in order for an individual patient to then receive the treatment. So literally he made the announcement and the following week, HHS ran out of COVID-19 money as of March 22nd. And so that's one of the biggest issues in terms of actually getting that program off the ground. In terms of its efficacy, as you guys and I, we've talked about before, the biggest concern right now is this what we call a viral count rebound. We see this um, in HIV treatment. We're now starting to see it anecdotally with the use of Paxlovid, the Pfizer drugs, to help decrease the severity of symptoms and the viral count so that you're not sick for as long. There were reports, even in the clinical trials, where individuals took the medication, felt well, and then maybe five days later, 10 days later, started to feel sick again. The biggest concern with this viral rebound is that people who tested negative after having taken this medicine, once they become symptomatic, they actually test positive again. So there are a couple of questions that 
have come up because of this, and no one really knows the reason why. Is it that it's viral suppression that happens within the five days that you take the medication, and then because the medication is no longer on board, the virus goes bananas again? Is it some sort of change of the virus that facilitates some of the virus being able to grow in terms of resistance? It's more likely to be the latter where it suppresses it, but not sufficiently to completely keep it at bay and giving the body enough time to create its own immune response. The second issue in terms of uh, infectivity is with people who've taken the medication and they feel better going back to work, what does that look like in terms of risk of transmission? If you're at work and you start coughing again, does that mean you go back into another five days of isolation because you are now symptomatic? Clearly, we're not going to redose you with this five-day course of medication. No one knows any of those answers as of yet because we are just now figuring this out given the higher number of people who now have access to this medication. You are phenomenal. Just phenomenal. (laughs) COVID deaths no longer overwhelmingly among unvaccinated as toll on elderly grows. Unvaccinated people account for the overwhelming majority of deaths in the U.S. throughout much of the coronavirus pandemic. But that has changed in recent months. This is according to Washington Post analysis of state and federal data. The toll is no longer falling almost exclusively on those who chose not to get shots with vaccine vaccine protection waning over time and the elderly and immunocompromised. So talk about this new reality. Absolutely. I think, you know, this is one of the concerns that people have in terms of getting vaccinated and what their expectations are going to be. One, the fact that I may not, I should not get sick. Two, I shouldn't get sick enough to be hospitalized and transition. What we know with this vaccine is at best, at best with being fully vaccinated with a strong immune response, it will be 93% effective in terms of protecting against um, death. And that was with the original COVID. Right now, it's estimated that with being fully vaccinated with a strong immune response, that's 85% effective in terms of protecting against significant infection and death. That still leaves 15% of the population vulnerable for either hospitalization or death. And what we know with specifically the Omicron variant, is that although it may not cause as severe symptoms as a general rule of thumb, it causes a higher number of people to get infected. And so anytime you increase the number of people who are going to get infected, when you multiply 15% by a higher number, you're going to get a higher number of people, even in the face of vaccination, that are either going to be hospitalized or dying from COVID-19. The other thing you have to take into consideration is the immune system for our seniors and our immunocompromised. Otherwise healthy people, a strong immune response based on data lasts about six months. But if you're over the age of 65 or immunocompromised, your immune system starts to sort of wear down in terms of its response after about four months. What we're struggling with right now is folks getting a booster dose when it comes to our seniors. Um, less than 70% of our seniors have received a booster. So that leaves 30% of our seniors more vulnerable to COVID-19 right now. And what we really need to start talking about is the perception of people in terms of risk. If our seniors feel like I got the two shots and I'm good, but the data tells us that with two shots and it's been more than six months since you got those two shots, your immune protection drops down to around 40%, between 30 to 40%. That means that it puts you at higher risk for getting a severe infection and unfortunately dying from COVID-19. 
And I think the government, the federal government and community-based organizations really need to do a better job of explaining to seniors why there is the role for getting a booster and what the risk is when you don't. We knew this from the beginning after we had had a good group of folks getting this vaccine at about six months out, even for otherwise healthy people, that the immune strength and length of the response was dropping, but even more so for our seniors, and that's exactly what we're seeing. But I think it's important for us to be clear that there's still a higher risk of both hospitalization and death among our seniors and among everyone who is not vaccinated. The data still speaks to the fact that 75% of individuals in the senior population, still of those who died, the majority of them were those who were not vaccinated. Now, we're at a point now when boosters have been out for a while. So what about the person who's had their booster and it's over six months and that's their third shot? Um, is there any data or information on, you know, a fourth and then, you know, next, you know, fall of certainly that's when, you know, uh, respiratory uh, illnesses tend to manifest themselves. You know, what about after the third booster and continuing with boosters? Any any data or any information on that? Right, boost in the boost to the boost, right? So we now know that people 50 and older and seniors over 65 and older can now get a fourth booster. It has now been approved. And then individuals who receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine can actually get a booster shot as well. Um, The question remains, especially for those under the age of 50, is how long and strong is the immune response associated with this fourth shot? And do I get it now or do I wait until what we expect to be the seasonality of COVID where COVID numbers start to increase in the fall? Most healthcare providers and public health officials recommend that for those two groups, 65 and older and 50 plus with chronic health conditions that you go on and get that booster. Now, knowing what we know about the length of time that the immune response lasts, if you were to get a fourth booster right now, that would take you all the way through into the latter part of the summer, which gives you good timing to prepare yourself to get a fall dose of this vaccine. Prayerfully, as we do enter into an endemic space and our numbers, both in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths all come down, even the wastewater that we measure, the presence of COVID comes down, we will finally appreciate the seasonality of COVID, thereby we do not have to get shots every four to six months. And instead, just like influenza, it's a shot that you get in September, October, that will last you through April, and then we're good to go. But that won't happen until we ride out prayerfully whatever the last wave is of these various sub-variants. I'm glad you just said that because now I've lost track of where I am. I I know I'm where I'm supposed to be based upon the number of shots I'm supposed to have, but now I've forgotten how many shots I've gotten. Right, the boost to the boost to the boost. Now, one of the things that I will bring up that uh, Mr. Nixon has talked, the two things that Mr. Nixon has asked about before, and I wanted to make sure I circle back. One, how much boosting can we do, right? Is there going to be sort of what we call T-cell fatigue? Meaning after a while, the T-cells and B-cells are like, yeah, we've seen you before. We're not responding to you anymore. And we don't trigger the same strong immune response. And we end up boosting for boosting sake without there being evidence to support a strong lasting immune response. It doesn't make sense to get boosted and the booster don't last you like two weeks, right? You want to get boosted knowing that it's going to last you sufficiently to protect you through whatever this COVID season is. The second point I want to bring up is this um, hybrid immunity where 
having both natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity has actually been shown to create a longer and stronger immune response than either one of those individually. It does not mean that if you're vaccinated, you go out and have a COVID party and get yourself exposed because you still, you know, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. But evidence has shown that the length the longest length of time in terms of immune protection has been for individuals who have been both vaccine immune and naturally immune to COVID. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much for your time, folks. Go to uh, AskDrYola.com. Go to AskDrYola.com for this level of analysis and care. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. All right. Enjoy your weekend. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. As the U.S. approaches the midterm elections, the Wall Street Journal reports the U.S. GDP has fallen 1.4 percent as economy shrinks for the first time since early in the pandemic. What's behind this contraction, and what does it signal going forward? For insight, let's turn to two guests. First, uh, an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. We're also joined by the host of the podcast, The Left is Dead, James Carey. James, welcome back. Good to be here. So uh, let me start with you, Dr. Tawheed. The decline in U.S. gross domestic product at the 1.4% annual rate marked a sharp reversal from uh, 6.9% growth rate in the fourth quarter of last year. And the Commerce Department said, they said this on Thursday, uh, the first quarter was the weakest since 2020 when the pandemic and related shutdowns drove the economy into a deep, what they say, recession. So my first question is, was the 6.9% number a reflection of economic, an accurate reflection of economic performance and should this current slowdown or contraction be a cause for concern going forward? Uh, the 6.9% was a uh, reflection of a recovery. We had a steep drop in, in uh, economic performance because of COVID. And then we had uh, money uh, that was sent out to, to, to consumers and, and so forth by the government uh, shot in the arm to get that, um, that spending back up. And so after that steep decline, the, the 6.9% was a recovery and an attempt to get back where uh, the economy was before the pandemic. That, that couldn't last. Uh, typically, a, a good uh, growth in the, in the U.S. economy is about 3%. And uh, we were running at that before the pandemic. We, we dropped into recession, which means negative growth for two quarters. Uh, we recovered for a bit, and uh, now we are um, uh, stalling. And and so I think this is certainly an indication that the economy is slowing down. James Carey, uh, your thoughts uh, when you read this, 
U.S. gross domestic product uh, a 1.4% rate. Your thoughts on uh, how concerned are you? I mean, I am concerned because I see a lot of I see a lot of things personally. Um, during the day, I work in, in printing, and uh, I've seen a decline in supply chains. I've seen uh, prices nearly triple on supplies. A lot of things came from Russia, unfortunately. So um, I think the effects of the supply chain we've been seeing, you know, the supply chain failure whether we've been seeing over the last we've been seeing it coming since COVID started two years now but it's really starting to take effect on you know local industries and um, I think you're seeing people as the economy starts back up there's nothing there to actually start the economy back up so I see all consumer spending was up one percent but it's mostly on services so we're not even purchasing any like durable goods like you know automobiles or anything like that um, I think this is you know the Biden Administration has been touting their job numbers are up more than any other administration, but that's everybody going back to work. So I think we're running on a sort of set of false numbers here, and the GDP decline is probably, you know, I'd say that's the lowest. Dr. Talheed also, um, you know, he uh, uh, James mentioned the issue of supply chain and, uh, uh, you know, alluded to the st- to the um, the sanctions. We see that um, Europe is getting hit hard by backlash from the sanctions. How much do you think, how much effect do you think that's having on this economic downturn? And do you see us driving into a recession and the same question, how much of the backlash of the sanctions are would push us in that direction? Well, a, you know, uh, by definition, a recession is two quarters of, of negative growth. We, we've had our, our first quarter. Uh, should we have another uh, consecutive quarter uh, of negative growth, we would be officially in a recession, although the, uh, the, uh, the, the administration may not want to admit that. Uh, I, James also mentioned that, that uh, these numbers are false numbers. For example, uh, an unemployment rate of 3.6 percent is is in uh, a normal economy a good thing. Uh, that would mean that that people have work, uh, and and much of that work uh, would be full time. Anyone who wants a full time job would have a full time job. But but you can be you can be employed uh, in the fish in the official statistics if you work one hour a week. And so with many people having gig, gig jobs or uh, part-time jobs that they don't want, the unemployment numbers are deceptive. They don't mean what they used to mean. And so while economists are looking at these uh, unemployment numbers and saying it's great, people out here in the real world who are not working as, as long as they want or not making the wages that they want are really uh, hurting, uh, which means that they're, they're not going to be uh, in a position to, uh, to increase uh, consumer spending by very much. Uh, one of the one of the, the the factors for the downturn in the uh, economy was a decrease in government spending of about four uh, percent. Imports went uh, up by twenty percent. That means more money is going out of the economy as goods come in, and exports were down six percent, which which means that uh, less money is coming in from things being being sold here. Uh, with supply chain crisis, with inflation. I think that that is going to continue and certainly into the next quarter. And James, you know, you mentioned the employment numbers and and to Dr. Tahid's point, James, you made the point that that's people going back to work and to Dr. Tahid's point, and many of them may not even be going back to full-time jobs. If they are going back to full-time jobs, they still may not be making what they were making before all of all of this hit. And to your earlier point as well, 
people that are now trying to get back out there, in many regards, there's no place to go. The the restaurant you used to frequent may have closed. The, the place you used to go to get supplies for your barbecue has closed. So, and, and, and we're not even talking about major stores like Brooks Brothers and Bloomingdale's and, you know, where the more affluent people used to get their thing. Those stores are closing. So, man, this thing, this thing is a, is a myth. At the same time, Amazon stock is falling. So the e-commerce giants are also losing out. So clearly people aren't spending what they say they are. And I mean, they're touting a wage increase, but these wages include government spending as well. So that's unemployment. And I just don't think the only uh, stocks I've seen, you know, returning are like Northrop Grumman is up 20% in three months. Uh, General Dynamics is up like 15% in three months. Lockheed is 20 or 12. So the only people I see benefiting right now and who probably have priority in the supply chain are the arms manufacturers because I've seen what it's like to try to get, um, you know, just raw materials for production. It's nearly impossible. Prices have almost tripled. So even if I wanted to bring in more, you know, hands to hire, I wanted to hire more hands to help me out with increased work. I can't take the work because the materials aren't there. Here's another interesting article. President Biden asked Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September. That's on top of last month where he asked for 13, well, he got $13.6 billion. And when we look at the, um, the uh, types of uh, things that they are providing, they're going to give health care. They're going to give uh uh, here's what it says. They're going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so that they have something in their pocket. They're going to provide food. I mean, it's just basically, oh, health care services, et cetera. So basically, it seems to me that we're taking Ukraine on as a kind of welfare state. And But I have to add this. I have to add this to it. Ukraine is an extremely a corrupt country, one would suspect that when that mon- money hits Ukraine, it ain't going to end up in the hands of the people. But at any rate, at a time when Americans are hurting, we'll start with you, Dr. Tawheed, your thoughts on the political and economic ramifications of grabbing $33 million and billion, billion, excuse me, and sending it off to Ukraine. Well, the Biden administration has been ineffective in its domestic campaign. Uh, the things that Biden campaigned on uh, and his Build Back Better plan has, has failed because of Democrats, not because of anything Republicans were able to do. And so if you, if you can't have a win in domestic policy, I suppose you can try to have a win in foreign policy. However, I, I think, I think the, the win, quote, in, in foreign policy by sending, uh, by, by supplying uh, Ukrainians with pensions and health care well, and, and other uh, um, uh, types of issues, uh, situations, food and so forth, will highlight the fact of a failure of the domestic um, uh, Biden agenda. And I think that's going to bode even worse for them in the midterm elections as people are looking at um, um, the, the effect on their lives here. You know, Biden has just announced that he's, uh, he was, you know, considering doing the um, uh, student loan uh, forgiveness, but has decided not to do any of that. And so he's deciding not to forgive student loans for Americans while he's uh, uh, supplying uh, pensions for for Ukrainians. I don't think that flies um, uh, um, uh, politically. Uh, James, it's Build Back Better for Ukraine. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, 
and to the point of the student loan forgiveness, uh, Biden's dropped to like 30 some percent in people under 40s approval rating of him, which is the lowest possible for a Democrat, really. And uh, I think that's, you know, he's trying to pull these things out now, like student debt relief or whatever, you know, a small amount of student debt relief, which he then backs out on. These are things he promised on day one. I think it's a little too late for any domestic policy to help in the midterms. They could legalize weed tomorrow. I don't think they would necessarily win the midterms because people wouldn't have money to buy the weed. Um, <laughs> well, you no, know. you would if so, you went to Ukraine. Oh, there we yeah, go. Exactly. They give you yeah. for, That's free the weed. ridiculous part, right? <laughs> I mean, now this country, they're paying for health care, which, boy, Joe Biden was the only one to raise his hand that people here didn't need health care on a universal level. Um they're giving debt relief, and yeah, and again, this money getting to Ukraine, as soon as it hits, that's a black hole. It's gone. Uh, <laughs> to send cash to Ukraine is ridiculous. But yeah, to give them a stimulus for a war that isn't doing much besides making everything more expensive for actual, you know, everyone here in the United States, whether we get our gas from Russia or not, we're obviously paying higher prices from our gas companies because they're going to take advantage of a crisis. So as people have to pay more here for everything, what does a war, you know, with Russia mean to anyone, you know, even when, especially when we aren't directly involved, we're just dumping money into it. And people are seeing this money that was formerly going out to the COVID stimulus payments now going to like stimulus payments for Ukrainian farmers and Ukrainian pensions. They're going to get direct cash and health care. These things they won't even give the Americans aren't going to play well. You can't really explain what this aid is going to go for because I don't think anyone would want to hear it. Well, I, I know what all this is, what we're going to do. We're going there and we're doing this to save democracy. And we're saving the democracy that we overthrew in 2014 because it was too democratic. So, you know, that's that's what this is. That that But but uh, Dr. Tawhi. I believe, this is just my opinion, that one of the major reasons why Biden is doing this is because he sees on the landscape that the war in Ukraine is lost and that if the United States doesn't step in and provide some type of support to the Ukrainian people in the midst of the, of the butt whooping that they've just taken— there's going to be uncontrollable unrest in the country. And that would be such an embarrassment. That would be even more embarrassing to the administration than losing the fight. You, it's one thing to lose a fight. It's another thing to lose the people. That's just my opinion. Your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that perspective certainly it has, has some validity. This, this reminds me of, of Iraqi nation building 2.0 where 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 you go and you uh disrupt a country now of course the the u.s was the invader in that in that case uh but the, but the country is is disrupted it's uh, about to fall apart and you start sending money over uh, uh to to various uh, uh political entities in iraq to try to keep some stability uh billions and billions of that of those dollars simply disappeared uh, there there's no accounting for them and Iraq, of course, uh, is you know becomes still becomes a, a a failed state, and so this money, as as Garland mentioned, is as is going to go over to Ukraine. It's going to disappear. Ordinary Ukrainians will probably get very little of this. Uh, this will this will be used to, for example, one 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 thing that will be used for is to buy natural gas. Well, who's the natural gas going to come from? It's going that money is going to turn back to U.S. natural gas companies 
uh, once they can get the ships uh, necessary to send the gas over. Uh, and, and, and so this will be a, a boondoggle for, for the oil industry, for the weapons industry. Uh, probably Ukrainians, ordinary Ukrainians will get very little of this, which I think, you're right, will, will lead to more unrest. There's another interesting article. Did Janet Yellen just signal a new world economic order in which she talks about um, things, uh, an economic tipping point, driving a shift from efficiency to security and globalization globalization to regionalization. And I've heard other people say that um, this war is the death of globalization, and that part of that has to do with the supply chain issue and people, countries may be recognizing they need to create their own stuff at home. Let's start with you. Your thoughts on that, James? Well, yeah, I think people are realizing you you can't have a global economy and pursue national interests, right? You, this is, it's inherently against each other because you can't try. Look at us. We're trying to force China out of this power position they've made for themselves by freezing them out and only hurting ourselves. In a global economy, you can't have the idea of a national economy, you know, superseding something else. And I, that's starting to fall apart. And the one thing I will say is I think that unrest in Ukraine could actually end up working in the Biden administration's favor in the long run, because I think they'll just keep Russia bogged down and take Ukraine out of the you know, global economy as a whole, as they do in like Venezuela or they did in Iraq. Eventually, you know, they surrendered it to just be on fire, which I think they're fine doing with Ukraine. It doesn't matter to them. But I just don't see any way out as far as the global economy goes. Everyone here has clearly rejected it at some level. Um, they had to force Biden through during a pandemic. That was the only way he could have won. So I think that as states try and assert themselves internationally, like China has been and Russia is now, you know, they're seeing that you can't do that in a global economy and you have to find ways to just sort of revert some processes back to yourself. Your thoughts on the death of globalism here. And and to that, let me let me add one thing quickly to get you to speak to is that in her speech, she talks about the war could create fundamental changes in the world economic order that prioritize security concerns over economic integration. And I don't know that that's a result of the war. I think that's been U.S. policy, which is why we're having the war in the first place. Because as you say all the time, countries that trade don't fight. Uh, Yes. And I I think uh, Janet Yellen is recognizing, she's looking at the balance sheet. She's looking at the money and realizing that even though you have the, uh, the military-industrial complex and those who want to go to war, uh, that's not sustainable in terms of having a global economy. And so she's looking at the numbers and is, in, in some sense, saying that, look, the, the military option is failing if you want to keep a, a global economy. Uh, now, the, the, the issue is, can, you, can the U.S. continue to have the Europeans on uh, sacrifice their own interests for U.S. interests. Okay. Okay. Dr. Linwood Tawheed, as always, thank you so much for your time. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Gentlemen, enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you guys back. You too. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The U.S. unveils a plan to ramp up censorship. Move comes days after Elon Musk struck a deal to buy Twitter and pledged to restore freedom of speech on social media. What are we to make of this? Well, it's Friday, so that means it's panel time, and let's turn to our first panel. We're joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch, and he's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Mr. Cavanaugh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Good to be back. So, Jim, the U.S., uh, his administration, they're expanding the Department of Homeland Security, uh, its purview to include fighting speech that the government deems to be disinformation. Uh, The new body will be headed by Nina Jankowicz whose resume includes advising the Ukrainian foreign ministry and overseeing the Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute Lobby Group. Uh, First of all, the fact that this falls under homeland security is, to me, incredibly telling and ominous. Uh, And then Nina Jankowicz, when you look at some of the videos, this woman— one would have to question her sanity. <laughs> Jim Cavanaugh. Well, you know, she's got a little bit of a singing voice there, and she wants, she has a great song, I Want to Be Rich and Powerful and Step on Everybody's Toes, and Who Do I Have to Screw to Do It? <laughs> so, you know, that kind of sets up who, who she is. But seriously, you know, you're right. This is a, it's, it's an ominous thing that this, in the Department of Homeland Security because that means it's, it's a police issue, really, in some respect, you know. They're going to police the speech of Americans for disinformation. Who the hell knows what disinformation, who decides what disinformation is? Excuse me, I will decide what disinformation is for myself. I want the ability to see the vis- different voices and opinions that are out there and make decisions about them myself. I don't need Nina protecting me so that she can be rich and powerful and step on everybody. And, you know, the, the most pernicious thing here, one of the most pernicious things, is she said, I started to think if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms. This is with regard to the possibility of Musk taking over Twitter. What would it look like for the marginalized communities, which are already shouldering disproportionate amounts of this abuse? This is the line they take to the liberals. We have to control speech on the Internet so that marginalized communities won't feel bad, won't be hurt, won't be insulted, you know. And this is just nonsense. And it's patronizing and it's, it's patent nonsense. Black people, black and marginalized and female and all kinds of are out there in, in social media making, you know, putting out critical videos and critical tweets and critical analyses every day that are outside the, the that, are, that are going to be called main misinformation by these people. And this is a phony line that they give you. Know, we, we're not trying to, we're not really trying to squash peace. We're just putting speech. We just want to make everybody feel safe. And the people who feel the least safe are the marginalized people. So that's really right. We're working on behalf of these poor marginalized people who, who, who are going to be abused by, by speech. And really, 
it's patronizing and nonsensical, and it, it, this is disgraceful. It is the Ministry of Truth, and it's it's terrible that we're in this situation. Steve, uh, you know, the same same question to you, but it's also, I think, important for people to understand to, to Jim's question about disinformation. This isn't really a fight against disinformation. This is a fight against a counter-narrative campaign. That's what this is, because I'm not— when when I'm providing analysis here and when Garland is providing analysis here, we're doing our homework. We're doing our research. We're talking to experts. We're talking to analysts. This isn't a disinformation campaign. It's a campaign against the American counter-narrative. Well, you, you're so very right. And there's there's a handful of things that, that I'd like to, to kind of point out and tie together here. The the video that we're we're kind of poking fun at the Mary Poppins one, um, that was apparently an audition take. That was apparently her her demo, <laughs> right? Because she got the job after that. <laughs> and, and in it, in it, because we played it on the show this morning. In it, more than once, she uses the phrase "information laundering." Mm-hmm. Laundering now. She's in charge of a, a whole division attached to the Department of Homeland Security. To, what, what kind of, of uh, uh, you know, statutes and laws are they now going to go after DHS-targeted information launderers? Does that sound like, like mere peddlers of disinformation, or does that sound like a terrorist charge to you? Because to me, it, it has frightening implications going forward. Um, I think that, I think, I mean, clearly the, this woman's job is to peddle disinformation. She said that the Hunter Biden laptop was a, a Trump campaign operation. Um, she's not had to walk that back at all. Jen Psaki danced around it. Uh, she said, well, I mean, the point of the whole division is that we should be able to, to have something that, you know, protects us from misinformation. I think we can all agree that that's a good thing. It just moved on. Uh, so they know what she's doing is operating the actual Ministry of Truth outside or out from the Department of Homeland Security. And this is probably just a coincidence. Um, but, Jim, the next day after the Ministry of Truth thing was uh Announced, there's an article. Uh, uh, Caitlin Johnstone wrote an article, and and which she uh, let us know. PayPal has blocked the accounts of multiple alternative media voices who've been speaking critically against U.S. official empire narratives, including journalist and speaker Caleb Mar- Maupin and Manar Adlian and Alan McLeod of Mint Press News. I'm sure these are just coincidences, Jim. But let me get your thoughts on that, and you know. Um, you know, what what this means, what this portends. And let's also point out that all three of those people are guests, yeah, <laughs> regular guests on this show. The show, which is run by members of a marginalized community who need to be protected from it, from themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 it's, of course, it's not a coincidence. This is a campaign. That it, it, it's obvious now that we have a systematic campaign that's being run through the government, the Department of Homeland Security, it's being run through the social media platforms and the financial platforms controlled by oligarchs and by the uh, the elite, which is it, it has is given the job of maintaining and reinforcing the dominant narrative. 
And this is just kind of crazy and outrageous that they stopped the PayPal accounts of Caleb Mopin and Menor Ively and Alan McLeod. I mean, again, these are just, they're people who are giving serious analyses, whatever you think of them. I mean, you know, first of all, they're not going to storm the White House. There's no insurrection coming from Menor Ively. And secondly, they're giving serious systematic analyses of the dominant narrative and, and, the, and the United States government situation. As, as you say, they're not afraid of lies. They're afraid of truth and of serious, well-researched analyses that can't be just dismissed. That's who they're going after. And to, to, but again, this is another step, you know, in a financial censorship, blocking people's essentially bank accounts on the basis of political content that is going to be undermine the United States. Nobody is going to want to have money in American financial institutions that can be blocked because you said something that criticizes the United States. You know, they're telling these people they can't even get their money for like 190 days. They can't even remove their credit card information from their accounts. It's bizarre. So you're seeing now the blatant political control of finances in a way that's going to be, again, undermining the United States uh, uh, pre- pretense that it's it's a trustworthy, uh, uh, you know, uh, overseer of your money if you have money somewhere. The foreign policy of sanctions is coming home. Just the other day, Mint Press published an excellent article by McLeod titled "An Intellectual No Fly Zone: Online Censorship of Ukraine Dissent Is Becoming the New Norm," documenting the many ways skepticism of the U.S. government's version of events, uh, events in this war is being suppressed by Silicon uh, Valley mega corporations, including financial censorship. You know, Steve, I think this could possibly be, be, have given rise to uh, to, to the uh, PayPal uh, actions against them. Your thoughts? Um, well, it does appear to be retaliatory. I mean, that we've seen P- PayPal do this to to other content creators before. Uh, my co-host on Slow Newsday had one of her donations to, I believe, Richard Medhurst frozen and you know taken because she mentioned, I think, Cuba in the comment. Uh, PayPal has been uh, just one of the the financial, I guess, third party providers that the Biden administration has gone after, or the Trudeau administration, for that matter, went after U.S.-based uh, GoFundMe over the Canadian trucker protest. This is, this is economic sanctions against independent media, and there's no other way to look at it. Uh, as far as what has happened uh, with Menar, with Allen, uh, with Caleb, I think it was two days ago, Garland, you got put in timeout. Um, my my current house guest, Wyatt Reed, all from Sputnik, put in timeout. There were, I think, two other people from Sputnik that got put in timeout. It, it, like, when all the coincidences go one way, are they, are they really coincidences at that point? Biden asks Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September Biden has formally asked Congress for $33 billion uh, for humanitarian and and military aid. About $8.5 billion of that is to help support the Ukrainian economy while the United States economy struggles. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, help me understand 
practically how folks in the Biden administration, as we move closer to the midterm elections, how folks in the Biden administration can think this is a good idea while Americans are being put out of their apartments, they're being foreclosed on with their mortgages, uh, they don't have health care. He just came out and said that the promise uh, uh, to eliminate student debt, that's not going to work. He promised first free college, then came out and said free uh, junior college or community college. That's now not going to happen. Uh, help me out, Jim. I don't understand the, the, uh, the, 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 the political calculus here. Well, the political calculus has to depend on the media not talking about it. Most of the media, which, you know, they're not talking about, I mean, I mean, watching Biden over the past few weeks. I mean, how can they not say this guy is not all there? You know, he's falling over his words and uh, shaking hands with invisible people, but they don't talk about it. So they're counting on the media not talking about this. This is cash payments, direct financial assistance, very unusual. They say it's, quote, going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people. So this is, you know, as you say, in a political sense, an upcoming election in America, people can say, we want our pensions and social support. They just did an article in the New York Times about Medicare Advantage, now it's ripping people off. We don't have Medicare for all because Biden opposes it, but they're going to make sure the, the, the Ukrainian people have uh, some medical care because they need that to keep them on their side in the fight against Russia. And, you know, the, the, the nastiest thing in this article uh, from CNBC is they, they describe that the United States has now just defined its aims as, first of all, securing an outright victory in the war by expelling Russia from Ukraine entirely. And secondly, by more broadly weakening Russia, Russia's entire power structure and tying up its, its troops in a war of, of, of attrition while crippling its economy. This is now clearly the United States defining its project as war against Russia, and it's going to support, because the Ukrainian economy is a mess, it has been a mess, and they, Ukraine has been supported and been the child of the IMF in the United States for the past eight years since the uh, since the coup, and they're trying to keep the, the, the Ukrainian people from saying, we don't want this war, we want to get back and have decent, decent lives. So they're going to pay them uh, while they make war with Russia. Steve, I have to uh, correct Jim Kavanaugh. Joe Biden did not turn and shake hands uh, with with invisible people. That He was shaking hands with the ghost of corn pop. Uh, uh, but Steve, same same question to you. But to Jim's point about the economy is a mess. Uh, Ukraine is just a den of thieves. I mean, the 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 corruption in the country is of historical proportions. So one first has to ask how much of this thirty three billion. Oh, I guess this is Ronald Reagan's voodoo trickle-down economics, how much of this $33 billion is magically going to trickle down like rain uh, to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to the Ukrainian people, while I would think most of it may find its way into Hunter Biden's hands? Uh, I bet some of it's going to go into the hands of that invisible guy that he was corn, shaking his hands with. Yeah. <laughs> that was corn pop. Uh, go ahead, Steve Poikinen. 
Well, I mean, I, I would answer the, the Ronald Reagan economic theory with a, a Bill, Quentin, Bill Clinton response, which I guess that depends on what your definition of is. is. Yes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> uh, no, this is going straight to the, the casinos. There was, you know, whatever the, the casino that is Ukraine, the, the average Ukrainian citizen isn't going to see uh, a dollar of this and in all likelihood the vast majority of the money is going to go to whatever u.s based government contractors get hired on to rebuild uh or at least the parts that don't have russian flags flying over them you know for for that matter but i mean this is the it's essentially throwing fake money at real problems which is something that the U.S. government has done, I I don't know, to I guess by their measure, quite successfully over the last thirty or forty years. Um, it it's it's uh, yeah, it's robbery. I mean, we know that we we know that that this is never going to see uh, anyone it needs to go to. There was a pro-Ukrainian rally uh, not far from you there, Jim uh, Kavanaugh, in New York City, where uh, I saw the video and there were people yelling, Azov, Azov, or it might have been Adolf, Adolf, I'm not sure, but it sounded like Azov, Azov to me, uh, Jim. Um, what does that tell us about where we are now in America when, I mean, 1939, they did it in Madison Square, Madison Square Garden. There was an open rally for the Nazis. They had them, a lot of them in New York and New Jersey. And here we are that people are so hoodwinked and propagandized. And some of the people interviewed didn't even know what Azov was, Jim. Uh, Jim Kavanaugh. Yeah, you know, I do live in a, in an area within a square mile. There's a, a, a number of Ukrainian friendship organizations and restaurants. The most, the Zelka, the most famous Ukrainian restaurant in the world, Odessa and Kiev. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, Ukrainian immigrants and diaspora uh, live in that kind of East Village area. And uh, when I wrote the article about Ukraine in 2014, one of them said, "You better be careful. Someone will throw you in front of a bus because." <laughs> You know, the, a lot of the families that came out were right-wing families, and and my sister married a Ukrainian, uh, a Ukrainian guy. Uh, he's passed away a while ago, but so you know, there is a Ukrainian diaspora in in New York, and a lot of them are you know from a right-wing tradition in Ukraine. That's who left uh, uh, after the Soviet Union uh, won the war. So. I'm not that surprised to see it, but it, it is astounding. As you say, a lot of them don't even know. The younger ones, of course, don't even understand what's going on here. They just consider themselves Ukrainians, and therefore they're proud of their heritage and, you know, like that. So uh, I'm not that surprised to see it, but it is kind of shocking in New York because it's a, it was a relatively small demonstration. But, uh, you know, you don't see this is, you know, there's no question about it. The Azov Battalion is a fascist Nazi organization. And uh, people who don't know it should know it. And it's kind of a disgrace that this would happen in New York and not be noticed, you know, uh, and not be protested and not be. I wonder what the new I don't know what the New York papers, the New York media are going to say about this. But, you know, if these were people talking about if if some such organization being lauded and being praised and, you know, being chanted, uh, with praise in New York City, a fascist organization, it would be noticed and and denounced. Steve, your thoughts? Uh, well, okay, so 
at that parade in the video uh, after they're chanting Azov, Azov, Azov over and over again, uh, the speaker is like, hey, 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 wait, wait just a second. Let's not forget these other right-wing Nazi groups. And then he goes off and lists a handful more and everybody claps and cheers. They have no idea what they're clapping for. The right sector, for example. Yeah. Yeah. They have no idea why they're they're you know, excited. They don't know. They just know that the TV told them that they need to stand with Ukraine. So they're going to go stand with Ukraine. And if that means yelling Banderite slogans, if that means cheering on Nazis, well, the ADL said it's okay because they're Nazis that only hate Russians. So it's different. And that's all right. And they're just, they, they moved from, you know, one hyper-reactionary event to this hyper-reactionary event, and the next hyper-reactionary event that comes along, they're going to, it's that, that meme, Garland, I support the current thing. <laughs> and this is the current thing, and they're supporting it. And Garland, I, before I pass this over, I have to give you uh, uh, some, uh, some major props. I saw the thumbnail for your video on YouTube last night when you quoted Rakim about the $33 billion. And I love that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Really quickly, uh, to, before we transition out of this, Jim Cavanaugh, that rally in New York made me think about Charlottesville and what went on in Charlottesville with the tiki torches and the and the skinheads and the violence and the reaction in this country to that, then only to have then-President Trump say, well, you got good people on both sides. And so there, there seems to be... Uh, I, I may be making more of this than there is, but there seems to be a very, very concerted effort to normalize this kind of behavior within American society because a lot of these nuts have gone over to Ukraine, have been trained in Ukraine, and are going to come back home. Yeah, I, I, I am kind of a little shocked by it. I'm not, you know, it is a little mini, mini Charlottesville. Uh, it's true that most of the people there don't have any idea what they're talking about, but that's itself part of the problem, and that's one of the things that helps it get get normalized. And it does remind me of the, the images of the you know the Bund rallies in the Madison Square Garden in the 30s, and we can't forget that. And you know, and and you know, it's happening. The normalization is happening in the media on social media. You know, the, the, Kelly Malpin and uh, Menar Adley get uh, and on get uh, put in jail, and and Garland does. I do. Everybody, but you know, the Azov Battalion now gets to be on Twitter without any any problem. And it's you know, it, people cannot. It, it's not okay not to understand what these people are and and what they're what, what they're fighting for because they are fighting for an international fascist movement, and they do have allies around the world, including in the United States, that know about this and are, will see their victory as a victory for international fascism. And people should be aware of that. Steve Poikinen, not only do they have allies in the United States, they have allies in the United States government, one whose name is Victoria Nuland, who helped to pay these Nazis to overthrow the democratically elected government in the Ukraine, in the country where all of these people in Manhattan at this rally are now allegedly supporting. Wait, hang on. Let me see if I can wrap my head around this. 
you're saying that there are elements within the U.S. government and certain business interests that have sided with and propped up Nazis, and, and they're mad at and they're mad at Russians. And, and, I don't know. And let me say to that that Prescott Bush isn't one of them. <laughs> well, that, that's because he actually couldn't attend this party. But um, yeah, it. it <clears throat> If it's not repeating, it's definitely rhyming. You know what I mean? And um, I think the, that's, I think that's the line. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Is that right? Correct. That's where I was headed with that. Um, and, and I mean, we you know we've got very similar conditions uh, economically. Garland, we've talked about this. This really does look like the U.S. Um, and Russia at the same time are trying to collapse the EU for different reasons. I just had a long talk with Tom Luongo on the show, and, and we went into this uh, in great detail. Um, it's I, we're Again, I, I keep falling back to this. By this time next year, Oceania will have always been at war with Eurasia, and that's just how things will have been. The main difference is Oceania is the speculator class, and Eurasia has all of the real resources. So a real resource economy is going to trample the speculator class. And that's something that everybody in the West kind of has to process and get used to and prepare for. Jim, Solomon's Island has signed a security deal with China and in a... Um, unimaginable uh, move of hypocrisy. The U.S. is saying they're drawing a red line there, that the U- that, that um, this independent sovereign nation doesn't have a right to choose its own allies. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah. Was it 10,000 miles away? <laughs> and the United States is going to draw a red line over a security agreement with China, which doesn't set up a military base or whatever. And they're going to say that Russia has a, you know, is crazy for worrying about military bases surrounding it on its borders in Russia, in Poland and Romania and uh, and uh, Ukraine, setting up a NATO, NATO bases and NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. The hypocrisy is just disgraceful. And it is what, uh, what the Chinese uh, uh, foreign minister, I think, called, you know, it's, uh, again, uh, the hegemony mindset and bullying behavior of the United States, that they can decide what's acceptable in terms of security relationships between countries 10,000 miles away. But, you know, a country like Russia cannot worry about security on its own borders. Steve. Well, this, I mean, this is the World War II again, right? We, we've, already, we've already done this. We, next, we're, we're going to be talking about our, our God-given right to all of the Philippines. It's, I mean, the, this is... The, this is what a spoiled, drunk teenager waving a gun around would do. This is what an empire in freefall does. It lashes out. It grasps for power wherever it can. It threatens. It bullies. And as the, the competing empires or competing nation states that have the arms and the resources and the funds to back them up, uh, you know, come to their own, they can say, that's bluster. That's, yeah, no, no, we, we can actually do something about this, and we've had enough of you, and we're going to. 
and that's going to get messy, but it looks like that's what it's what's happening currently with not just the Solomon Islands, but just about anywhere there's a U.S. military base. Jim Cavanaugh and Steve Poikinen, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Joe Biden asked Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine through September. And it's Friday, and it's panel time, and it's time for us to turn to our second panel. We're joined by political cartoonist and syndicated columnist Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. We're also joined by a D.C. senior news correspondent for over 20 years. He's covered multiple presidencies and congresses, speaks on domestic as well as international issues. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, Colin, welcome back. Great to be here. So this $33 billion, uh, $20.4 billion is for additional security and military assistance. Another $8.5 billion is to help the Ukrainian economy while the U.S. economy remains in the tank. Ted Rawl, why are we seeing to it that Ukrainians have pensions when American citizens, very few of them now because of 401k programs and just not having pensions, don't have pensions? Ted Rawl. Help me understand the political aspects of this. It makes no sense. No, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, I guess you could say, you know, we're we're building infrastructure over there, so we don't have to build it over here. <laughs> oh. um, it is uh, it is it is very strange. Um, uh, what's strange about it is the optics. It's strange that uh, the Biden administration seems to believe that the American public and the voters are going to be okay with this. Uh, and maybe they're right. Uh, maybe the cult of militarism is such that they can continue to throw money uh, into this proxy war, a uh, proxy war that they acknowledge is a proxy war uh, that is, by their own acknowledgement, an effort to weaken Russia, uh, does not represent any kind of existential threat uh, to the United States or its allies, uh, it's not really, it's not our business. We're not an ally of Ukraine at all, officially. Uh, you can check the State Department website. It will confirm that. So uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it is baffling. Um, I would like to think that voters would pay attention and say, hey, you know, I, I don't have, I'm effectively uninsured. The Affordable Care Act doesn't cover me, uh, really, because I still have a, $10,000 annual deductible. Uh, and, and why are we sending $33 billion more after the billions we've already sent to Ukraine? And you know there's more coming after that. How come there's always money for this stuff? I, I, I wish people, I hope people will ask that question. I don't know if they will or not, but it, I, I wish they would. Dr. Colin Campbell, I don't know if you were in the room. I know I wasn't in the room while the folks during the in the Biden administration were discussing this and were 
explaining to themselves why this makes political sense. Because as we get closer to uh, the midterm elections and folks are reflecting back on the accomplishments of the Biden administration and they're being told, well, I couldn't give you uh, student loan relief because we don't have the money. I couldn't give you child care because we don't have the money. I couldn't give you free junior college or community college because we don't have the money, but I'm going to send eight and a half billion to see to it that there's food on the table, uh, warmth in the home and gas in the cars of Ukrainian people. Amid all of the escalation with food prices and rising rent costs and mortgages and home prices and all of that that are going up, leading partly to the Biden's high disapproval rating right now. But we can go into that in a little bit, um, or it could be a totally different topic altogether if we want to deep dive into that. I think one of the big things is that the Biden administration looks at Ukraine as a stronger international partner in the future if they come out on the winning side of all this. There were some overtures that Ukraine had made in the early 90s indicating that it did want to be closer in alignment with U.S. foreign policy, especially when it came to nuclear nonproliferation and its cooperation with trying to minimize as much as possible Russia's or the, the, the Russia's impact in that region. And I think one one of the big things is U.S. Um, tries to create an alliance of some type with certain countries in regions so that it can shape policy in that area with the least amount of damage. At least that's the political calculation there. It also would allude to the fact that the U.S. still wants to have its influence in various parts of the world, especially when it comes to what it says is the export of democracy and trying to uphold this democratic standard of values that, um, that it prides itself in having. And so with that uh, and taking on Russia, it's, it, 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 the optics for them, they believe, is that it supports that ideology. And so they're going to keep putting money into Ukraine um, and now we've, we've committed to billions of dollars, so it's going to be very difficult for us to bail out, uh, especially for the Biden administration, again, if we're not victorious in this, if we don't uh, elevate Ukraine to a point where they push Russia out or they're able to stand on their own and fight on their own with this kind of commitment. Uh, that is detracting from U.S. coffers to fill coffers in Ukraine, it would look really bad if we bailed out at this point, even if it meant cutting off funding in the future. Ted, one of the things that Chris Hedges talks about is the crisis of legitimacy of the ruling class. And when you look at what's happening in, in for instance, in Europe, where this has been disastrous economically and they are going to have a mess with refugees, that is maybe the worst part of it. But here in the United States, uh, and, you know, I understand what Dr. Uh, 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 Campbell says, but there is no universe where um, uh, uh, Ukraine comes out of this thing on the winning side. Basically, Ukraine is going to be carved up and whatever Russia leaves left is going to be the stepchild of the United States and the EU, which means we just adopted a new colony, which so uh, my point being this. As we slide into recession, most likely next set, the next next um, next the, in the next couple months, in the next quarter, 
How politically is this going to affect this crisis of legitimacy of the ruling elites in the United States, in Europe, as this debacle, particularly economically and as far as Ukrainian refugees unfolds? Yeah, well, uh, it, it is It is going to, it is a debacle. I mean, you know, maybe when I was here listening to you at the beginning of that question, I was thinking, well, adopting a new colony is maybe what the United States wanted. Maybe NATO and the U.S. want uh, the future nation of Western Ukraine, or maybe it'll just be called, uh, you know, Ukraine in the same way that uh, Serbia was uh, called Yugoslavia for years after they lost Croatia and Bosnia. Um, you know, maybe they want that, and it'll be uh, it'll be a win, for, a net win for them. Uh, but it's true, there is no world in which Ukraine is going to uh, win, defeat the Russians, throw them out of uh, you know the entire country, and, uh, and and kick them out of Crimea and the Donbass. That's just not going to happen. And the the West uh, is never going to give them the weapons or supply the Allied troops and the training uh, that would be sufficient or adequate for them to do so. Um, it's just not going to happen. So, therefore, um, uh, it is. you can sort of see the Ukrainians are being used by the U.S. In this, uh, as pawns. They're pro- it's prolonging the inevitable, and it, uh, it's going to be an ugly scene, but I think the Biden administration, among many other things, is counting on this war being a big distraction that will uh, make Americans think about something other than the economy. Uh, you know, it's, it's a toxic approach. I don't really think it's going to work, but, you know, that's what they're thinking. Colin Campbell, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that the U.S. would, on the most idealistic platform want to drive Russia out of Ukraine. And from indications, that is not what's going to happen. We might uh, result in a stalemate, possibly. That that might be the best that can be hoped for when we uh, keep giving weapons and artillery and, uh, or excuse me, uh, money for all of this weaponry going over there and to uh, hold Russia to a certain line or a certain boundary outside of Donbass or Kiev, perhaps. But I don't think that it's going to have this desired outcome that many that uh, the saber rattlers and the neoconservatives would like to see and would be to push Russia totally out. And this is going to create a problem for the foreseeable future, if that's the case, because then parts of Ukraine could become uh, almost like a, a battleground like we've seen in Syria or Yemen, for example, where you were leading these proxy wars that just are unpleasantly protracted for the foreseeable future. And that can be problematic, especially as we look at the shrinking of the U.S. economy. And as I alluded to before, the, uh, the cost of inflation, uh, and yes, definitely politically, this is bad news for Biden. Um, if you look at poll numbers and the dissatisfaction that people have with the current conditions. And so as this goes on and those desirable outcomes aren't being realized, the Biden administration will definitely need to make a much stronger, bolder political calculation as to how they want this to go. But if past this prologue, we'll just see more and more money dumped into this. We'll see this long, drawn-out battle or war uh, that we're now just kind of just throwing money at 
And the Ukrainian people are kind of caught in the middle. And then it'll remain to be seen what will be the uh, the final outcome of all of this. You know, will Russia gain more ground? Will Ukrainians be able to hold them at the battle line, so to speak? Or was this is this all going to be for naught? And these billions of dollars that are being thrown at this conflict are going to be wasted uh, because the outcome is opposite of what everybody would have liked from the Biden administration. You know, the Biden administration told us at the beginning of the sanctions regime that the ruble was going to lose value, the Russian economy was going to go in the tank, there was going to be unrest in the country, Putin would be overthrown, the world is behind us. Well, the the world majority is not with us. Yes, the wealthiest nations, which uh, equates to about half of the world's economy, they're behind us for now. But when you look at the largest populations in terms of India and China and then so many of the the African nations that are not behind this, this isn't going globally. Forget what's happening just strategically in Ukraine. When you look at how this is impacting the global economy, this isn't going the way the United States planned it, Ted Rawl. Okay, so, uh, you know, I think some votes are more equal than others. And the, in, and the same thing is true in the international community. Uh, there is not a, uh, you know, I think the United States, the Biden administration, doesn't really care if, say, uh, countries in the developing world are not on its side. It would take that support if it could get it, but it's not. But it does. It doesn't care. What it's really after is uh, is Western is is, is uh, the West, uh, Europe, the EU, and they have that pretty much. Although there's certainly some skepticism that is uh, you know underlying the surface of the United Front. Um, it is very. I mean, China and India are definitely uh, Russia's trump cards here. And, uh, you know, the, just like, you know, in terms of like where they're going to, where they can circumvent Western sanctions, where they can find markets, where they can find investors. I mean, you know, the whole, it was always a fantasy that there was going to be some sort of uprising against Putin as a result of sanctions. I mean, sanctions always have the effect of strengthening domestic support of any government that is targeted by them. Uh, we've seen that in Cuba for 60 years. Um, we see that we saw that in Iran. Uh, we are you know, still seeing it there. It's just it's just not it's the exact opposite effect. Uh, the people who are targeted by the sanctions know that you know who's doing it to them. They know that it, in this case it's the U.S. and the West. They know it's not their own government. So why would they be angry at? I mean, it's like it's it's too clever by half, and it never works. And uh, but I I do think um, certainly the U.S. doesn't have the world on its side. But on the other hand, the U.S. didn't have the world on its side when it invaded Iraq either. Colin, to to that point, Joe Biden calls on these sanctions and then has to go to Venezuela hat in hand begging for oil. Uh, he has to go to Saudi Arabia. He can't beg for oil because they won't take his phone call. So I understand, and, and Ted is right, the United States doesn't care, but the United States is quickly going to come to a point where it realizes uh, 
it's not being invited to the party anymore. I mean, uh, again, you've got Venezuela and you have uh, Iran joining sides. You've got China and Iran. You've got Russia and China. It, you can't continue to claim victory when you it's you against the world. Dr. Campbell, if I add one thing, not a single country in Africa is supporting the sanctions against Russia. Not a single country in the Middle East. Not a single country in Latin America. India is not. Uh, only what? Japan, Korea, in um, Asia. To be frank, the countries of color around the world, none of them side with the U.S. And I believe it's the history of colonialism is a big part of it. They're looking at the U.S. and they're looking at the EU and they're saying, you have been oppressing us for centuries. Don't ask us to join you on this. It seems like blatantly obvious, Dr. And, Campbell. And Russia has not Russia has not been an imperialist or colonial power. Right. And we have to remember that Russia came to the aid of India um, at the end of the colonization uh, that was going on in India as well. Russia was one of the, I wouldn't say ally, official ally, but definitely came to India's aid after that. And so India does remember that relationship that Russia had. And then we have to look at just the waning power and influence that the U.S. has with other countries and how long that's going to go on. I think what we'll be telling, though, is the impact of sanctions on Russia, even though that the ruble is, is, has now bounded back and Russia has made some um, some engaged some machinations so that the ruble maintains its status. We have to see will that change uh, if there is a, an interruption with fuel. We have to remember even when when uh, Europe uh, when Biden administration was trying to appeal to European friends and partners and nations uh, to. Uh, to follow the sanctions and be a part of the sanctions, there was an initial pushback because of the relationship that exists with Russian oil and with Russia, uh, being that they provide so much fuel. Will this be sustained? And what kinds of dynamics will affect that relationship going forward? Should there be interruptions? Should Russia's economy uh, falter even more than it had in the past, even though, again, it's on the rise. Uh, I think that remains to be seen, but it's definitely interesting that the U.S.'s influence that it once had, they're finding it's finding itself coming up short with many countries. Ted, let me ask you this, too. If it becomes a war of economic attrition, currently, um, according to any number of polls, the New York Times, Bloomberg, etc., the Russian, the, right now, Vladimir Putin's uh, support, approval rating, has risen to 83 percent. There is, and Biden's is like 33, I think it was, and, and on and on throughout the West. Olaf Scholz is tanking, blah, blah, blah. If you're in an economic war of attrition, the one with the 83 percent approval rating is probably going to be able to last a bit longer than the one with the 33 percent approval ratings. Your thoughts, Ted? Especially, especially in a parliamentary system where a vote of no confidence can can put a halt to your government on any given day. Ted? Uh, yeah, that's certainly true. And then, of course, obviously, uh, the midterms are looking bleak for Biden and the Democrats. Uh, that's coming up really soon. And it, the trends are all going exactly the, the wrong direction So for them. So, um, you know, it's, it's also sort of the national character thing. I'm, I'm generally uh, reluctant to argue the idea of national character because it requires some sweeping stereotypes. But I'm going to kind of venture out here and say that I think the American people are probably a little bit uh, less 
imperious, impervious to uh, inconvenience than the average Russian is. Um, I think the average American is going to get impatient at high energy prices and uh, other sort of shocks to the system and, uh, you know, 401k going heading south. They're going to they're going to be more reactive to that than uh, people than Russians, you know, who have a history uh, that has required them to just be a lot more tolerant of a lot more things. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, who who would I put money on and being being able to 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 withstand this? And yeah, I think over time. Yeah, I would I would uh, I would put my money on the Russians. Well, you know what? And before you respond to that, Colin Campbell, I, I don't think you're that far off, uh, Ted Rawl. I remember seeing a a documentary on the uh, on the number one tennis player in the world, uh, Novak uh, Djokovic, who they showed all of the suffering that he went through with the war and whatnot. And he looked in the camera at one point and, and they asked him why. Well, why are you so tough? And he said, because I know how to suffer. And I think that that is a mindset that speaks to a condition or conditioning that one goes through when you when you find yourself having to have gone through what 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 many people in those countries have experienced. Uh, Colin Campbell. Yeah, even though they have they're familiar with suffering, even though that has gone on for a long time, and part of their uh, part of the ethos is to accept and engage or to almost be comfortable with discomfort. Uh, there's, that even has a time limit of just how long people can just be suffering on end. If you have troops that are uh, not complying, if you have uh, oligarchs losing their money over time, like I said, sanctions will, will kick in even more throughout the year. I don't, I think there's a limited, there's a time limit on that the, exorbitant amount of suffering that a nation can feel, um, even if the president, um, even if Putin is enjoying some high approval ratings. Well, I, wait, I wait, McCullin, wait, McCullin, let me let me let me push back and give another example. Yeah. Afghan fighters. Who who the who who are the folks that nobody in in the last thousand years wants to go up against? Afghanistan, right. Afghan fighter. Yeah. Why? Because mm -hmm. they've been they've conditioned to a certain reality. Because it's their right. home. Because, yeah. and, be, and, be, and good point, because it's their home. Go, go ahead, Colin. Right. Yeah, what did they call Afghanistan? Was it the graveyard of nations or the graveyard of militaries? Or where, something? where empires go to die. Yep. Where empires go to die. Right, right. And I, But at the same time, I feel like, at least this is the perception right now, that if this was a, a conflict that was in Russia proper, if Ukraine was attacking Russia or if the U.S. was attacking Russia, we would see that steely reserve go on for uh, and go unquestioned for who knows indefinitely, right? But because this is something where Russia is, you know, um, has initiated that attack on Ukraine, the ethos may not be the same as if the nation itself were under attack. And I think we have to respect that dynamic as well, where it's a little bit different than you have um, forces from all over the world trying to invade Afghanistan. And these people are really uh, 
defending their home, you might be able to compare that type of mentality of defense and defending your home where your, your family is and where you, you've grown up with Ukrainians who, uh, who said, you know, we're going up against a very tough force here, but we're going to dig in. We're sending our children and our wives off to other nations, but we're going to stay here and fight because we believe in our nation. And I think that's the kind of mentality you're seeing coming from Ukrainians right now, which, which we have to admit, uh, I do believe Putin is finding rather challenging right now. I would argue, based on reading Russian media, that is exactly what the Russians believe. They see this as the Great Patriotic War Part Two. They see Nazis on their border, Right. They actually the Russians see it as a war with the United States using Ukraine as a proxy. The Russians say Ukraine doesn't have any agency here. Their bosses are in Washington, D.C. So I would argue Colin, uh, Colin Powell, I'm say Colin Powell, Dr. Colin uh, Campbell. I would argue that exactly what you're saying is exactly the way the Russians see it. And that's why specifically I believe that they're going to have the, the steely, uh, you know, uh, um, resolution. And, At any rate, and, and just quick point to Garland's point, because I think he's absolutely right. If Vladimir Putin were to try to negotiate with Zelensky now, oh no, the Russian he'd people be, he'd be thrown they'd out. They'd be ready to throw he'd him out. They do, the Russian people do not want a net negotiation. They out. want an outright victory, and they will stand Go for ahead. nothing else. Yeah, you're you're correct. Uh, this is interesting. The the U.S. has unveiled a uh, the Biden administration a disinformation governance board. Now, what's interesting is there's a lot of pushback on Twitter. They're calling it the Ministry of Truth from uh, 1984. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to go straight to you, Ted Rawl. The Disinformation Governance Board. Your thoughts? You know, uh, the Disinformation Governance Board uh, story is, of course, obviously. Uh, you know, fits in nicely with the theme of the controversy over Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter uh, and whether, you know, at the center of that, whether Donald Trump should have been deplatformed or not. And, you know, one of the arguments I have with some of my liberal Democratic friends is they say, well, you know, uh, Donald Trump uh, spread misinformation. And I'm like, you show me a president who didn't. Show me a politician who doesn't. Um, you know, the, the problem is it's all a matter of degrees and it's completely subjective. And I tend to lean on, you know, I, I agree at least theoretically with what Musk has said he, his, his mentality is. It's like, hey, uh, let's just open things up more freely, let everybody talk, and, uh, you know, the, the truth will out over having, by having more discussion. Um, this, is, this is just fits in nicely with that. Um, you know, Biden administration is in no position to talk about disinformation or misinformation. Uh, between all the stuff that they omit uh, and, and the stuff that they outright cover up, let's not forget the bombing, uh, the drone killing of the family of 10 in Kabul in the closing days of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. Was, it was a cover-up. The, the, the Biden administration kept saying uh, there was nothing to see here. These were members of ISIS. The guy was from ISIS-K. Uh, they were bad people, uh, they, you know, and then when, you know, the truth came out sort of accidentally, then, you know, they, they, they've tried to brush that under the rug. That's just one story. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's hilarious. Just you can never trust anybody, no matter how well-intentioned, who says that they're going to be the arbiter of what's true and what's not true. If I were to say that, you shouldn't trust me. 
And, uh, you know, and I'm a lot more honest than Joe Biden. Uh, Dr. Campbell, one thing I always look at is this. I, I, my, my computer keyboard works. I don't have to follow anybody I don't want to follow. And if somebody says something I don't like, I can uh, just uh, delete them, not follow them anymore. The idea that things have to be arbitrated for me or somehow curated for me is preposterous. I feel like what they're really doing is fighting against the voices that push against what they don't, what the, you know, their narratives. And Dr. Ken, the knob, yeah, the knob I think so. I think that's works. a good, yeah. Right. Well, we, we definitely have more access to uh, to our own individualized and customized uh, places that we want to receive content. But I think what we're seeing is a manifestation of just some of the frustration that's coming from the public about the information that's already out there and an administration that's willing to capitalize on that in a political calculation as well. We can't ignore that this uh, this this board will be somewhat politicized, but at the same time, as a person who studied communications of media and misinformation, disinformation, different levels of propaganda that have been propagated throughout time, we do have a frustrated public. There is, there's not a, a day where I don't see someone on social media saying, yeah, you know, I wish that r- reporters or journalists were licensed in some way or that there was a, a place where people could get more uh, unbiased news or something like that. And of course, there are definitely caveats to all of those things, should they be uh, strongly implemented. But yeah, again, this is a this is part of the public in the zeitgeist about trying to navigate through disinformation and misinformation. Ted Rawl and Dr. Colin Campbell, gentlemen, both, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you back. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. And on behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 